This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody, it is good to be with you as we get started right away in a brand new series that we're kicking off today called It's Probably Related. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about families. Now, that means that at times it's going to get uncomfortable, okay? We're going to talk about Nobody likes them when they talk about their mom and daddy, okay? But we're going to talk about mom and daddy, all right? That's what's going to happen for the next few weeks, all right? So to start this family series... I need to do something that really is remarkably countercultural. I'm going to talk about a biblical framework for what family really is. So I'm going to give these. These are not in your notes, but if you want to write them down, it will be quite a bit of writing. So number one to write down, once you see this, the epicenter of family in the Bible's marriage. Okay. This is there. There is no family without marriage. And this is from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, so much of what I'm going to express in the next few moments comes out of the very beginning of this story, the story in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. This is why those who are more orthodox in their faith get so frustrated when culture begins to meddle with and mess with marriage. It's the epicenter of family, and family is epic epic in its perspective of what God is doing through it to redeem the world. So what is God's plan for marriage? God's plan for marriage, I'm going to say a lot without saying it directly, God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman in a loving, committed, and procreative relationship for one lifetime together. Please understand when I say man and woman, I'm talking about biological man, biological woman. There's a lot of stuff in our culture about gender, and there's certain characteristics of gender identity that are literally anchored in the design of God. I believe this so strongly that in 10 years we've done two series already on this. Go back if you have our app. You can listen to we did. They're both called sexy. Okay, God made you with these embedded. Now there's some aspects of gender that are remarkably cultural. Okay, and they do ebb and flow from culture to culture to culture. But I want you to know God uses a man and a woman uniquely, who are loving and committed to one another to procreate over a lifetime together, okay? Healthy things grow. So what does marriage look like? Within a Christ-centered marriage, look at this, the husband and the wife are mutually submitted to one another. Now, I'm going to stop there because we live in a culture where we like to talk about one side of that. Ephesians chapter 5, you know, the wife will be submitted to the husband. But that whole passage begins with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutually 
submitted. The husband submitted to the wife and his family's needs, and the wife submitted to her husband's leadership. The way that Ephesians puts it is the husband lays down his life to serve the needs of his wife. And the wife lays down her will, not her opinion, not her voice, but the final decision to say, I'm going to follow you. Now, in a world where there are a lot of voices out there saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong woman. I ain't never going to follow a man. Okay? I've never met a woman who has a man who's laying down his life for her, who's saying, I won't follow that man. Giving up my rights, giving up my, it's not about me. I'm not serving myself. I'm, I'm here to make sure that what you need and what our family needs is taken care of. That's God's design. I'm not making this up. This is just the word of God. You can go to Ephesians 5 for that. Then number four, within a family that's procreative, there's going to come kids. So what does that look like? Within a family, parents are called to raise kids to maturity so that God can send them out into the world to become missionaries for his kingdom because they are ultimately his kids. Now zero in on that phrase, raise kids to maturity. I mean, when I meet with people who work at colleges and they talk about incoming freshmen nowadays. Don't know how to tie their shoes. Don't know how to get money out of an ATM. Don't have a concept of what a hundred or a thousand dollars is like. Why? Because their parents are still cutting up their hot dogs and pancakes for them. Okay? Your job if you have kids is to raise kids to become mature so that they can take care of themselves. Some of us, this is the hard truth, some of us idolize our kids so much we want them to depend on us because they're little gods to us. That's who you really worship. That's the rise and fall of your heart. They're not your kids. They're God's kids. And your job, the Bible says that as arrows are in the hands of a warrior, so are kids in the hands of the righteous. We are to send them out into this world to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Now, all of that is God's good plan. But if you miss number five, you miss a lot of what this series is about. Number five, we wrecked God's good plan. We hear those and we go, that's not my practical experience in life. Because what God planned to be good, sin has broken and made it complicated. For some of you in the room, you were a little kid when your parents divorced and they sat you down and looked you in the eyes and said, mom and dad are not going to live together anymore. But you know what? Good news. You're going to have two birthday parties. And you're all excited. Until now you're an adult. And for your kids, you got to throw two birthday parties because mom and dad can't be in the same room. And you got to go to two Christmases. 
and what God meant to be good and healthy and in unity, sin has corrupted and broken. For some of us, family, the place where we're supposed to be safe and loved, supported and known. We, we bring up a topic like family in this environment and all of a sudden something inside of you starts to cringe. I don't want to talk about family. Because you grew up in an environment where your family was none of those things. They were abusive. Maybe it was emotionally. Your parents abused you emotionally by, by yelling at you and putting you down and calling you names. Maybe for you, it crossed that line and it got physical. And you can still recall being slapped and hit. And even things that are unspeakable that shouldn't ever have happened. Maybe for you, you're the girl you thought you'd found the right guy and you fell in love and you got married only to find out it wasn't the right guy. And you suffered abuse, neglect, and we're left. Please hear what I'm going to say. Every single family in this room has a history of dysfunction. That's tough for us to believe because some of us sit back and we scroll our social media and you're like, but, but they seem like they are so perfect. They seem without blemish. No, that's not true. Every single family has a history of dysfunction. Some dysfunction we celebrate. You might have grown up in a family where it was like you got to be in control all the time. You got to be in control of your emotions. You got to be in control of the people that are in your life. If you're not in control, then it's broken. But the problem is, is if you're in control, God's not in control. It's sin. Some of you were taught as you were growing up, you got to be right all the time. You got to be right. And so you work hard. And you're very intentional. And your family argues a lot because everybody thinks they're right. But the problem with that is that the Bible's so clear that if you take your ability to be right and go stand before God with it, it's like a pile of filthy rags. It's a pile of rags before. You are not right. Your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. It's sin. Maybe you were taught, don't trust anybody. Nobody's, everybody's got an agenda. You don't listen to anybody. You do what's right for you. But the problem is, if you don't trust somebody, it's really hard to trust God. Again, it's sin. See, every family has a history of dysfunction because every family has a history of sin. And sin, sin turns what was good, what God intended as something to be good. It turns it into something that's broken 
and complicated. That's what sin does. It shatters what God intended. It breaks what God created to be good. It'll do that to your families. It'll do that to your friendships. It'll do it to your career. If you let it live, sin is going to break stuff. It's going to make it complicated. I've come to find out that's even true for our bodies. You know, God didn't design us originally to get sick and as we age for our bodies to break down. But I tell you what, sin turns our bodies into something that's broken and complicated. I'm finding that out. I'm over 45. And now apparently I'm in a new category of old people. I didn't know this. And we were literally at home watching some TV and all of a sudden this commercial comes on. If you're over 45... Use Cologuard for your colon screening. I'm like, what? I'm now old enough, and my wife, who's younger than me by, by a good way, sitting over there laughing at me over 45. I tell you what, if you go to the doctor for a physical when you're over 45, it is a vastly different experience. When you're like 25 and you go for a physical, you just go in, they're like, hey, can you do a jumping jack? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, buddy, you look great. Go out, go live life, right? But if you come into the doctor for a physical and you're over 45, the doctor's like, hey, buddy, could you shut that door behind you? We about to get after it in here. I mean, it's just they're going to work you over. And they ask you questions when you're over 45 that you'd never imagine people were going to ask you. Hey, we need to get detailed family history. Can you? Does anybody in your family have a history of diabetes? Uh, not familiar with that word. I've heard my family say the word diabetes quite a bit. I don't know. As I understand, there's one kind you're born with and one kind you earn. Apparently, my family had the earned kind. A couple of people, that's all I remember. I don't remember who it was. Does anybody in your family have thyroid issues? I don't, thyroid? I don't even... Do people talk about this? Do you just sit around and talk about how your thyroid's functioning? I don't know. I don't know if people... Does anybody in your family have a history of hemorrhoids? Doc, do y'all just sit around and talk about who has hemorrhoids? Is that how it works with your family? No, we don't talk about that. All I know about hemorrhoids, another TV commercial, is that apparently there's a product called Tux Medicated Pads. And if you use it, it helps out. And I remember seeing them in some family member's bathroom at some point. I guess. I guess. You know, we don't, as families, we don't talk about our brokenness, do we? We don't sit around and in loving ways talk about, we have a history of being controlling, don't we? We have an history of addiction. But we need to. Because until you can see the sin, call it sin, you won't be rescued from that sin. And that's what God's doing. He's at work rescuing you. See, the redemptive story is born out of a family. This is how important family is. You go all the way back to the very beginning. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the son, Joseph. 
classically called the patriarchs. For the next few weeks, we are looking into the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you're going to see something. And I believe as we see it, there are some of you that are going to get free. There's a new level of freedom that God is going to give birth to in your life and in your family. Today we're going to look at Abraham. Genesis 12 is where we meet Abraham. God speaks to Abraham. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. God calls him to something that's different. There's a problem. Nation, a lot of people, a lot of provision, a lot of power. The problem, Abraham's wife Sarah has not been able to conceive a child. Now for us, that sounds pretty common because there are plenty of families that opt out of kids for ethical reasons, for practical reasons. But in their day and age, that was highly unusual. For our families, we love our kids, but on the balance sheet, they are liabilities, okay? This is why I hear some of y'all complaining about how much it costs to feed your boys, right? It costs a lot of money. But in Abraham's day, they were assets, significant assets, because at very young ages, they begin to actively contribute to the bottom line of the family. So not having a child doesn't imply that we didn't try. No, there's probably been significant active trying, but with no results. And then Abraham is called by God to the promised land, Canaan. And that's where his journey begins. Now I want to stop there and I want you to see that God is promising Abraham two things that he doesn't have. I'm going to provide for you. There's a promised land. And here's the other thing. You're going to have kids. See, Abraham had a call. God calls him out. But in Genesis 15, what most scholars believe it's about five years later. Abraham receives the call, starts moving in it, and then God makes a covenant with him. We're going to read from that. Genesis 15, verse 5. He took Abram. Now, at this point in time, his name is Abram. This, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see after. He has this moment right now. He has an encounter with God, and God's going to change his name to Abraham. He took Abram outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now listen, we live in the city for most of us. Even if you live in the country, you live in the city. All right. And we have something, a phenomenon around here called light pollution, which means that when you're out at night and you look up at the sky, there's enough light radiating around that we don't see clearly, okay? But if you get out in the middle of a desert, out in the middle of the mountains, you get out in the middle of a place where there is no light around, you look up at it, the sky looks vastly different. That's what Abraham would have saw. Literally hundreds of thousands of stars. Barren, unable to have kids. And God says, you will have 
that many. It's a promise. And then in the next verse, these are both very important. Verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness means to be made right with God. So what's happening is we are not right on our own. We are made right through Jesus Christ. We do this forward looking back at the cross. The righteousness of Christ is imputed from the past to us in the future. Abraham is in the past looking forward and God imputes the righteousness of Christ into him. Abraham saved because he believed God. He trusted the word of God. And then in the next verse, look at what God does. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Look at what it says here. To give you this land to take possession of it. That, I, I wasn't planning this, but I'm going to preach this for a second. Y'all, y'all, God will give you some things that you got to go to war and take possession of. Some of you have this promise. God has promised that he will make available to you peace in your heart. But here's the thing. You're not going to have it until you're willing to fight for it. God said, you know what? Through the blood of Jesus, I will heal your marriage. But you want to know what? You're not going to have it until you're willing to go take possession of what God has already promised for you. We sit around and wait for God to deliver what He's already said. I gave it to you. Go fight for it. Abraham, I'm going to give you the land. Now go take possession of it. Go take possession. Abraham is 70 years old when God calls him. He is 75 years old when God makes this covenant. And then the next chapter, he almost ruins the entire thing. His wife, Sarah. Now think about this. Decades of not able to conceive a child. Decades after decades. And one day her husband comes home. God spoke to me. We're going to have as many kids as there are stars in the sky. Now Abraham's excited because he heard the Lord. But all she heard was Abraham. We've been trying. You've been holding my hand when it didn't work. I got an idea. It was cultural that if a woman was not able to conceive, her husband would conceive kids with her maidservant. So Sarah brings Hagar. Abraham, why don't you try with her? Now you can imagine Abraham, he's like, what? This is your idea? You really want? I mean, if this is your idea, I guess. And they conceive a child. And in Genesis 16, after the birth of his son Ishmael, Sarah gets so mad she kicks them out. Now it would take literally 25 years from the time God makes a covenant with Abraham until Isaac is born. But Abraham has two sons, his two. It's Ishmael who becomes estranged from him. He, he's kicked out. He's no longer allowed to be around. 
God promises to take care of him. And then he has Isaac. Now, most of us don't know this. But both Islam and Judaism trace their origins all the way back to Abraham. Jews through Isaac and Islam through Ishmael. In one moment, Abraham settles, compromises, tries to do what's convenient, and the impact of that fracture is still felt today in the world that we live in. Imagine this. This this is the timeline of Abraham's life. I mean, he's 75 years old when God makes that covenant. Look at the stars. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born. That's a long time of waiting, trusting, and hoping. I want to make a few observations out of the life of Abraham. And the first one is God's call is accompanied with his covenant. Every person in this room has a call in their life. If you got kids, y'all listen to me. You are called to be a parent. You got somebody that lives next to you in a house, you are called to be a neighbor. You got a mama or daddy that's still alive, you are called to be a son or a daughter. There are some things like that that are obvious. For some of us, we're called to be teachers. For some of us, we're called to be nurses. For some of us, we're still figuring out what it's supposed to be. But when God calls you to something, He does not leave you unequipped for it. God will make a covenant. He will make a promise. That's what that word means. Covenant means promise. And y'all need to know this. God doesn't break his promises. Numbers 23 says God is not a human that he should lie. So when God tells you, That in his word, this is why some of us need to learn the word of God. When God says that weeping and mourning may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning, what he's saying is you might go through some seasons of life that are difficult and challenging, but you need to hold on in hope because when that's over, there's joy coming on the other side. When God says in His Word that He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called to His purposes, what you need to understand is that there's a promise in there that if it's not good yet, God's not done with it. We need to know the promises of God. Because God doesn't lie to us. When God calls you to something, He makes a covenant. You know the words testament in the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. talks about the promise It literally means covenant. And that new covenant, Jesus said when he administered the Lord's Supper, I make a new covenant in my blood. Jesus sealed that promise with his blood. You need to understand there's powerful promises made on your behalf. But I need you to also see this, number two. It is easy to settle for something that's not complete obedience. It's easy to settle for something that is not complete obedience. God wants 
complete and total surrender. He wants complete obedience. You heard God say, I want you to forgive them. I know they, I'm not saying what they did was right. I know that it hurt, but I want you to forgive them. And you send them a little text that says, I forgive you for what you did, but you hold on. It's not complete obedience. You come in contact with the truth that out of your increase, God wants you to tithe which means 10% of your income returned to the local church. It's not an amount, it's a percentage. And you go, but God, aren't you happy with my five? It's incomplete. It's not complete surrender and complete obedience. Listen here, Abraham tried to settle. He tried to settle and it cost him personally. He had a son that he would never have a relationship with. Completely estranged. And it's costing this world still a lot. He tried to settle. I hope this gets in your heart. Partial obedience is disobedience. You need to reject that line. Well, I'm meeting you halfway. There is no meeting God halfway. The standard set in the scripture is that you die to yourself every single day. That you carry your own cross. Not meeting God halfway. He didn't do that with you. He paid it in full on the cross. He took all your sin upon Him. He was all in. you got to be all in too. Partial obedience is disobedience. So I want you to think about this with Abraham. Where did this come from? Because, I mean, in all truthfulness and sincerity, looking at the life of Abraham, he is a remarkable man. Remarkable. I mean, Isaac is finally born, and they hear the voice of God. I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Waiting 25 years for his son. And he's willing to do just that. It's remarkable. It's commended in Hebrews chapter 11 as being a profound illustration of faith. So where did this come from? This willingness to settle. I hope you see this and I hope a light bulb goes off in your soul. We're going to reverse the story. Go to Genesis 11. This is the way that it ends. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram. Recognize that name? Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, that's going to become Sarah, the wife of his son Abram. And together, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Abraham's father leaves their home in a city called Ur 
and sets out for Canaan. Bringing Abraham and Sarah, but when they get halfway, they settled. Haran was an affluent community. It was easy, convenient, and comfortable, and they stopped. They settled halfway. Abraham, in his life, almost did the exact same thing. I want you to hear this. What you struggle with is probably related. It is probably related. So let's get practical. As we lay the groundwork for this series, I'm going to say a few things, two things today as we wrap up. Number one, sometimes you have to go back to go forward. Sometimes you have to go back to go forward. How'd you get to where you are in life today? We like to say, well, I I made these decisions. It's not just you, y'all. It's my parents made these decisions. And their parents made these decisions. How'd you get to this moment today? There's a past that led all the way to this moment. So there's a principle at work here about where you are in life right now. Your present is a window to the past. There are things going on in your life right now, in your heart right now, that if you'll let them, they will become a window to shine light on something in the past. Well, I struggle with fear and anxiety. It's a window to the past. Well, I'm I'm just... I have an addictive personality. I struggle with this substance and I've struggled with this. It's a window to the past. Well, I'm always dealing with some kind of drama and conflict. It's a window to the past. A lot of times we talk about the what. What am I stressed out about? What am I worried about? But we don't ask the question, why is that stressing me out? We talk about what I'm trying to control, but we don't talk about why I'm trying to control it. Three times in the opening chapter of Haggai, the Bible says this, God speaking through the prophet, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. I want to remind you of that because far too often we're caught in patterns without actually giving thought as to why we I can remember, it's probably 20 years ago now, my pastor said, you need to sit down with a counselor. And I was a young, arrogant man. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I don't need to go to some counselor. I'll pay for it. Fine, I'll go. And I remember, it's about two or three sessions in, all we've done is talk about my family. That's it. Why do you keep asking me questions about my mom and dad? Until finally, there's this aha moment. Oh, it's probably related. Go home. Start asking some questions. And I did, and I started hearing things that I'd never heard 
and seeing things that I'd never seen. You know, if you ask a fish in an aquarium, are you wet? <laughs> it's going to be, what do you mean wet? What do you mean? Why? Because it's all they've ever known. For you and your family, it's all you've ever known. Sometimes we got to go back and we got to see it for what it is. Not just what I'm trying to control, but why I'm trying to control. Not just what I'm afraid of, but why I'm afraid. Because you can't win the battle if you don't know what you're fighting. And some of us have never had the courage to ask that question. To actually start looking into what is the past? What does my family of origin have contributed to these things? What am I carrying with me through life? You're not going to win the battle if you don't know what you're fighting. But I want to say this, number two. Treat your parents with the grace you want your kids to treat you with. Because when you start diving into this, what will happen is you actually do see, oh, well, I have a tendency to stop halfway because, Dad, you stopped halfway. Treat your parents with the grace you want your kids to treat. Be careful who you identify as the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 says we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. The problem is not a person. It's sin. I'm sure your parents got it wrong. But if you're raising kids, you're probably getting it wrong too, okay? And so I'm just going to remind you of a simple verse we prayed so many times out of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Have the same kind of grace for your parents that you want your kids to have for you. See, when you see it, when you finally come to a place where you get optics on it and you start to see, well, I grew up in a family where I was taught to be in control. I grew up in a family where I was taught don't trust anyone. I grew up in a family where I was told you got to always be right. You're gonna, you have two choices. One, you can be a victim. Or two, you can overcome. you got two choices in life. And I want you to say this with me like you mean it. I am not a victim of my past. Y'all say this with me. Come on. I am not a victim of my past. Let's say it again louder now. I am not a victim of my past. I want it louder. Come on. I am not a victim of my past. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. 
This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, which means it's our faith that leads to overcoming. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I am not a victim of my past. Say it again with me. Come on. I am not a victim of my past. One more time. Come on, loud. I am not a victim of my past. The Bible says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You got two choices. You can be a victim or you can be an overcomer. And the promise of the Bible is that through Jesus Christ, we can overcome. That is the land he's delivered to you if you're willing to go take possession of it. Are you willing to do the work? What we struggle with is probably related. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the life of Isaac and then the life of Jacob. And you're going to see that it all unravels until God intersects and pulls it all back together. What we struggle with is probably related, but y'all need to hear this. You are not a victim. Yes, you grew up in a family that had dysfunction. Yes, you grew up with parents who were sinful, but you are not a victim to your past through Jesus Christ. You can overcome. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. We just looked at this. Look at this. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And the powerful truth of the Bible is that when I surrender to that belief and I give my life over to Jesus Christ, I'm adopted into the family. Now I am a son, adopted son. You might be a daughter, an adopted daughter of God. And what you struggle with might be related. But your victory your overcoming is related as well to your heavenly Father. It's probably related. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.